Hello and welcome to episode 421 of Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching, with me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and teacher educator, and my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, which was published by Routledge, is available as an e-book, an audiobook, or in hard copy. You can contact me by email by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. On Twitter, I use the handle at InsideEd. This week on Inside Education, I speak to cognitive scientist and psychology professor at the University of Virginia, Daniel T. Willingham. For several years, Professor Willingham's research concentrated on neuroscience and the brain basis of learning and memory. More recently, he has focused on applying cognitive psychology in primary and post-primary education. His work has been published in 17 languages and includes the books Why Don't Students Like School, Raising Kids Who Read, and When Can You Trust the Experts. You'll really like this podcast if you're interested in the teaching of reading, in education research, and in how the science of learning can be applied in practice by teachers. Professor Willingham raises questions about how research on learning styles is sometimes applied in an unscientific way in schools. When I met up with Professor Daniel Willingham on Zoom recently, I began by noting the wide range of topics on which he has written, including learning styles, technology, the teaching of reading, teaching and teacher education, memory and neuroscience. I then asked him what theme or question unifies his interest and work in education across such diverse areas. Uh, I think the unifying theme is what we know from the basic science of learning that can be applicable in schools and homes. So um, I, I think the distinction between basic and applied science is very important. And um, I'm, uh, that, that's always in the front of my mind when I'm uh, researching or writing. And so I, I think that's the unifying theme is trying to both summarize what's known from basic science, but then think sensibly about what it might mean in applied contexts like schools and homes. And when you're talking about science, are you talking about neuroscience? Usually not. I'm usually talking about cognitive psychology. Uh, I think the applications of neuroscience to education have been, might be too strong to call it disappointing, but I think there's a little bit less enthusiasm than there was maybe 15 years ago. Uh, about the broad applicability. And when you're talking about cognitive psychology then, can you say a little bit more about how you became interested in that branch of psychology and what are the underpinnings of that science of psychology? Any science has what historians of science typically call paradigms. So you have assumptions that seem reasonable to the practitioners of the science, but they really are assumptions. Uh, So for example, assumptions about what it means to know something, what the nature of learning is. Uh, Cognitive psychology represents what are probably the uh, dominant set of assumptions, the dominant paradigm in experimental psychology today. So people who are interested in how people learn are most often cognitive psychologists. So in the history of experimental psychology, which started in the late 19th century, there have been three broad movements and cognitive psychology is the third one. One that started in the late 1950s and replaced uh, one that your listeners might be familiar with, behaviorism, which had a very, very different view of learning. Your work then is in the tradition of psychologists like Piaget and Vygotsky. Would that be right? Broadly speaking, yes. But I mean, you know, Piaget died in 1980. Vygotsky, I've forgotten what year it was, but it was decades before then. Um, so I think the the science looks quite different than, today than it did then. 
Um, and Vygotsky in particular would be an uneasy fit because Vygotsky conceptualized learning as the, the role of uh, social forces in learning to be different than mainstream experimental psychologists do today. And, you know, you're talking about the science of learning. And if you think of a typical elementary or high school teacher's work, they're teaching a broad range of subjects. So, for example, they may be teaching young children how to read, but they may also be teaching them physical education or they may be teaching them arts education uh, or they may be teaching them mathematics. So is there one science that can inform the teaching of all of those subjects? There is, but pr- predictably, there, there are going to be things that would be applicable to each subject or each domain specifically. Uh, but then there are things that I think are applicable throughout. So the way that memory works, the way that we select things to pay attention to versus get distracted. Uh, the child's got the same brain applied to different tasks. So a lot of these tasks have sort of a core that uh, overlaps among all these tasks, if you will. And so, yeah, I think that there, there is some central information that's useful for teachers to know whatever their subject matter is and whatever age the children are. And can you say a bit more about what that core body of knowledge of, of science is for teachers to know? Yeah, and again, I would, you know, the, how much they need to know of the actual science. This is something that I've written about and argued it, uh, that I, of course, think that psychology is supremely important, but I recognize that, uh, you know, there, you could say some of the same is true of sociology, and you could say some of the same is true of, you know, urban planning. I mean, there, there, there are all kinds of disciplines that have some claim to, uh, have information that's important for schools. And so teachers really need to be experts in teaching. And my view of the relationship between basic scientists like myself and educators is I should sort of summarize what I think might be most important in the field and then say, okay, teachers, here's, here's what I think is, might be useful to you. Here's even maybe a couple of ways I could imagine it being useful. Uh, And then they take it from there. The idea that teachers should sort of know the science doesn't make any sense. Candidly, when someone finishes at the University of Virginia with, you know, a psychology major and they've, you know, that's been their primary thing for four years, you really feel like they've got to start. The same thing applies to teaching. How long does it take to become a really deep thinker about teaching, to become, you know, a really capable teacher? Ten years? I mean, I don't don't know. So, you know, it it takes years to become really, really good at something. And so absorbing all of the basic science and digesting it and, and getting a feel for what might be useful in one context or another is, to me, a ludicrous demand uh, on a teacher. And I, I think in, instead, I mean, right now, it's, it's sort of up to freelancers like me. Uh, what I've argued is what would be much better is if teaching uh, organizations of uh, you know, professional organizations for teachers provided some assistance with this work. In other words, they would have scientists on staff whose job it was to review science and write periodic updates for teachers uh, in ways that were understandable and helpful to teachers so that they wouldn't have to be constantly keeping up with the science. Because best case scenario, our dream is that you would get fantastic uh, education in in science of learning uh, during teacher education. But then you're off teaching, right? And so the, the science keeps marching forward. How are you going to get updated? Again, the idea that, well, that should sort of be up to the teacher. That's what it means to be a professional. No, it really doesn't mean that. That's not what professionals do. That's not what professional physicians do. That's not what dentists do. That's not what accountants do. They're in practice and they're busy doing their thing. And there are professional organizations that 
publish periodic reliable summaries of what's new in their field that they need to know about. So it comes back to that distinction that you talked about at the start of the distinction between basic and applied science. Right. And where are the reliable sources then for teachers to gain insights into current knowledge of basic science of learning? A basic science of learning? I think there are very few. I mean, I think there are some publications that tend to be pretty reliable that are directed towards educators. I myself have written for American Educator for many years, and I think they do a very good job. I think Phi Delta Kappen does a pretty good job. Others, I think, I'm a little hesitant because I'm like, oh, I'm probably forgetting someone. But um, I, th- those are two that I think are usually pretty reliable. But yeah, I mean, there, there should be more. And, and again, I feel like it's the kind of thing that professional organizations for educators, like this is a service. This is what educators really need, right? It's, you know, my, my, my teacher education was 15 years ago. I know things have happened. Or, you know, I'm reading about grit. Is this all silliness or is this all hoopla or is there really something to this? And they, they need a reliable source for that. And like I said, yeah, there are, some, there are some journals out there that are reliable, but you'd really like it to have the imprimatur of the, uh, of the professional organization that you trusted. One of the areas that you've applied the science of learning to is that of reading. And one of the questions that I have when I looked at some of your work in this area is how do you weigh up the importance of people learning to read, developing the technical skills as opposed to developing the motivation to be a reader? I'm interested in this balance between obviously you have to develop some technical skills, but if you don't want to read, the technical skills are going to be no good to you. So how do you balance those two areas of, of learning in specifically relating to reading? You know, I don't know that I've thought about that very carefully. I don't, I don't remember having written about it explicitly, sort of comparing the importance of one versus the other. I mean, I, I suppose if you, if you had to really choose, you would say the technical skills are probably more important because you do run into people who are fairly capable readers within the domain where they it's important to them to read, and they're not very motivated anywhere else. I'm thinking specifically of a couple of friends of mine who are, they don't read in their free time. They're not leisure readers. And I don't know how well they read when they're reading something like a, you know, a newspaper or you know, serious nonfiction they might encounter in a magazine or something. They may or may not be very good readers. So when we talk about technical skill of reading, we always have to remember reading is very domain specific. The more you know about a domain, the better you are at reading. And the friends I'm thinking about, they're very good readers when they're reading, you know, things that are related to their professions. Other than that, they're not motivated to read. They don't read. So should schools be proud of what schools have achieved in producing this reader? I don't have the slightest idea what the answer to that question is. You know, I mean, uh, it, it gets to a question that other people have posed, which is, of course, it's good for students as readers to read in their leisure time. Like they get better as readers if they do that. But do we fetishize this? We're not so concerned about whether people love math and do math puzzles when they get home. And we're not concerned that they read history when they get home. But we really want them to be leisure readers. And I, I'm the first to say, like, that's the way I raised my kids. But I also saw it as sort of a personal value. It's like if you want kids to be successful in school, if this is your reason to, to try and raise kids who read, is that you want them to be successful in school, there are much more direct ways to get success in school than to be a leisure reader. You know, you study more, you, you get a tutor or, or whatever. You, you, there are obvious steps that you would take. So, sorry, I went a bit afield on your question, but I do find reading seems to stand alone in certain ways that I find interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually thought that you did write a little bit about encouraging children to love reading, but I, I didn't note the reference, but I, I thought there was an article. Oh, I wrote a whole book about it. I wrote a book called Raising Kids Who Read. What fascinates me is that 
American children, at least, do not read during their spare time very much at all. Yet parents really wish that they did. So there's this you know, very strong, very prevalent wish among parents that, that kids would be leisure readers and kids aren't. And so I thought someone should write a book about this. Someone should write a book about what you could do to raise kids who read. Um, and it turned out, I think my mom read that book and maybe about five or 10 other people, but there, people may still like the idea, but not enough to buy a book about it. Or maybe it's just a terrible book. I don't know. But anyway, this is, I, I don't so think I, so. I, am, I am interested, but, but I, I do have to tell you that I did say explicitly in that book, like, why would you want to raise kids to read? And my, my conclusion is just what I said to you before. It's like, it's a personal choice. Like it's the same reason that my wife and I love interesting food, and that's just kind of a family value. And so we want our kids to enjoy food. We're not either one of us very interested in sports. So we, re- we kind of recognize that's wonderful when families do that, but that's just not our family. And so we don't do that. Something else you've written on related to that is the difference between listening to an audiobook and reading a textbook. What is the difference between those in general, and if, if you can at all apply it to students in school. So you said an audiobook and a textbook specifically? Well, 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 well no, I, sorry, a, a, a conventional textbook is a what conventional I'm book. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a book, book. Sorry, a conventional book. Yes, yeah. Got you. Yeah, um, yeah. So this is something I've written about in a couple of places. The, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of overlap because the way that reading works is that reading does not have specialized mental processes that have evolved. And the reason for that is uh, the way that your brain has evolved to enable you to walk. Your brain has enabled you to reach. Your brain has enabled you to understand social relationships. Uh, you have an evolved part of your brain that allows vocal communication, but not reading because reading is too recent a technology. There hasn't been time for specialized modules to evolve if they were going to. What that means is that the brain has to use modules, mental modules that evolved for other purposes and sort of hijack those and apply them to reading. The reason I bring all that up in the context of audiobooks is the mental module that is used for reading comprehension is the same one that's used for oral language comprehension. There's enormous overlap. And so the consequence of that is if you give someone a standard reading test, and then you find another form of the reading test, it's comparable, it just has different passages, and you read it aloud to them, so it's a listening comprehension test, the score is going to correlate extremely highly So there's lots and lots of overlap. Now, there are some differences around the edges. So one thing that is obvious is in an audio book, you get what are called prosodic cues. Prosody is the sort of melody of language. And written written text is not very rich in prosodic cues. So the difference between, oh, this is a great party and (laughs) great party. Uh, So when you're using sarcasm, That's all prosody, right? It's the pace at which you uh, different words come, emphasis, and so on. So when someone, when you're listening to an audio book, you get prosody. Prosody, this is one of the reasons that listening to a Shakespearean play, even if you don't watch it, you just listen to a recording of a Shakespearean play, it's much easier to understand because the actors are helping you. But then there are other, so that makes it sound like audiobooks would be easier, but then there are other ways in which traditional print gets a little bit of an edge. So one is that when there's somewhat complicated syntax, uh, we do backtrack. We make eye movements, regressive uh, eye movements. And the, it can be as high as something like 10, 15% of eye movements are actually regressions. You, of course, don't notice this when you're reading, but watch someone's eyes when they read, and you'll see they, they jump back more than you would expect they will. Um, and that's very hard to do in, in an, audio, an audio book, sort of stopping and going back when you don't understand something. That's when you would, uh, when it would really be noticeable occasionally. You know, you'll get you'll finish a paragraph and realize, I don't know what in the world that was. And it's easy to just start again. And in principle, you can do the same thing with an audio book. But I think probably most people 
don't do it as much because it's just more troublesome to do it. So all of these are really differences around the edges and the, the core process of language comprehension, is, there's, really, uh, there's really quite a lot of overlap. But things really change when you get to textbooks uh, because textbooks or anything that's, um, well, textbooks in particular, because they're structured differently than fiction is or light nonfiction. Fiction is, uh, narrative, of course, has a lot of causality built into it. And it's got structure that we understand. Light nonfiction is written, uh, it's, it does, it's not, of course, not going to have a narrative structure, but it's written to be where the author is trying to help you. And the author is trying to make uh, connections explicit. Uh, textbooks aren't like that. Textbooks tend to be, uh, the, the structure tends to be hierarchical. And when you have a hierarchical structure, you're frequently expected to draw connections between what's happening now and what happened a while ago. So in other words, you may be reading a textbook about the 1930s and you're reading about Hitler's rise to power and what was happening in Central Europe. And I may say there were four main things that were happening in Germany that that made the, the populace there especially open to a leader uh, like Hitler. So the next thing that's going to happen is there's going to be those four reasons. By the time you get to the fourth, you're supposed to remember what ties all this together, right? There's These are all examples or reasons for this one thing. But that may have been pointed out to you like three or four pages ago by this time, right? So this is why auditory, like textbooks are complicated. But in addition to that structural difference, you're reading them for a different purpose. The material is not only unfamiliar, but you're not reading it just to understand. You're reading it to learn and remember something. So once you start trying to do audiobooks in, in once you start trying to do textbooks in audio format, that's when you really get into trouble. And most people will say, oh, I love listening to books, you know, in the car or when I work out or whatever. But it can't be anything too terribly complicated because you can feel it that you can't you can't comprehend as well. Yeah, because that, that kind of is anticipating the question I was going to ask next, which is, you know, would you be concerned if a child is st struggling to learn to read conventionally? Do you think that audio that, that being able to comprehend an audiobook would suffice? But I think you've kind of answered that, that it's, it, it, it depends on the nature, on the content of the, of the material. And, and, I think, and certainly there are, there are forms of text that, that can be best understood uh, through text. I think that's right. At the same time that we have an added dimension so that if uh, in the example you give, if you've got a child who's having difficulty um, learning to decode, which is I'm assuming what you meant, the child's uh, having trouble going from print on the page to words in the head. Um, I think it's really important that that child have audiobooks. Uh, and they should continue, of course, to you know practice decoding and 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 try to get as far as they can with that skill. But if reading in particular and school maybe in general, becomes to that child a matter of being asked over and over and over again to do something that they find very difficult. And it's plain that many of their peers don't have the difficulty that they do. That's going to be incredibly dispiriting that you cannot blame that child for concluding school is just not for me. I mean, I just the main thing that we do here, I don't do as well as everyone else, in addition to which they're, they're not going to be learning as well as everybody else. All their peers are learning about, you know, whatever it is they're reading about. Um, and because this child can't read very well, they're missing out on the opportunity to learn about that, uh, that content. Another area that you've written about, and I think your views on it will probably come as a surprise to a lot of teachers in Ireland, and that is that of learning styles. And I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is, what is wrong with how the idea of learning styles has been applied to education? It's hard to know because I don't know how it's been applied. And what I've frequently pointed out is when I'm criticizing learning styles, I'm not criticizing any pedagogy. 
I'm criticizing learning styles as a theory of the mind. Learning styles is not a pedagogy. It's a theory about how the mind works. And it's a theory that's been around. It's, it's actually multiple theories. There have been many different types of learning styles theories proposed since the 1950s and possibly earlier. Uh, and none of them have panned out. And so that's that's been the criticism. The pedagogy that a teacher is doing that's inspired by learning styles may or may not be good pedagogy, um, but they what I'm encouraging teachers not to do is to believe that there's a scientific scientific basis for what they're doing. There's there isn't if you if it's based on learning styles. So I suppose the way I believe that at least some teachers think it needs it's it's applied is that if, for example, you're teaching about volcanoes, that some children may benefit from seeing a line drawing of a volcano. Some people so, say they would be maybe I don't know. Uh, maybe they would be visual learners or uh, yeah. whereas some children may actually benefit more from having a three-dimensional model of a volcano yes. and somebody else may benefit from maybe hearing the audio of a volcano and you know maybe seeing it erupting on a video or something like that and that that, that the belief the teachers have is that 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 some children will really only grasp the concept of a volcano if it's presented in their preferred learning style. Right, right. And is is that is that a sensible approach or is that a necessary approach? Do you believe? So it's it's interesting. I'm getting I'm I'm sort of talking about what I'm interested in. Sorry, <laughs> I will get to your I will get to your question. I promise. But I want to I want to point out that. In your description of that situation, you sort of you started with with a pedagogical classroom technique, but the claim was really a claim about the mind. It was a claim about in, about how children learn, and that there are differences by modality in terms of how children learn. So let's 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 take each of these in turn. First, I'll first I'll we'll talk about that prediction. This prediction is very easily confused with a similar idea, which is actually right, but has very different implications for the classroom. So the idea is, just as you said, one child will learn it visually, one will learn it kinesthetically by manipulating objects, the other will learn it auditorily. You should talk with that child about volcanoes. Uh, This idea is distinct from the idea of ability and is frequently confused with ability. So it is the case that some people have a better visual memory than other people do. Some people have a better auditory memory than other people do. That's not the same as style. If it were, we would just say visual ability, auditory ability. The idea of style is just as you said, so a key distinction is Ability, you'd always be happy to have more ability. Who wouldn't, right? Style is not supposed to be, one style is not supposed to be better than another. It's just a preferred way of receiving information or processing information. So the, the other way of thinking about this distinction that's very important is it's assumed that the child who gets the visual presentation, the kinesthetic presentation, and the auditory will all end up learning the same thing. What you really want them to learn is meaning, right? It's what you want them to do is understand something about volcanoes, how volcanoes form, how they behave, what prompts a volcano eruption, all that sort of thing. Uh, And then it's just the modality in which you're going to present it. The ability idea, which I've said is right, is not, that's not the case at all. When you have visual ability, what you remember is visual. You remember specifically what it was that you saw, not what it meant, but what what you saw. Likewise, with audition, you remember what you heard. You remember the, the quality of the voice if it's someone speaking. You remember the the accent if they had an accent. So you can sort of recreate this auditory experience. So that the predict when you understand it that way, the prediction of visual auditory kinesthetic learning styles theory is actually very peculiar. It's that you can it can enter into these different modalities 
uh, and it's better or worse one way or another, but that doesn't have anything to do with visual ability or auditory ability because uh, it's all going to end up in meaning. And yet somehow the differences among kids is going to be important to the quality of meaning that ends up in memory. Now, in terms of how you test this, it's extremely straightforward. You First, you, you take 100 kids, you categorize them as either being visual learners or auditory learners, uh, and there we could talk about how you would categorize them. And then you give everybody some sort of experience, either visual or auditory. Maybe it's a list of words, maybe it's a story, whatever. So either they see a series of pictures that shows a story or they listen to a story. And then you've scrambled things so that some of the auditory learners are getting an auditory story. Some of the auditory learners are getting the visual story. So in the end, half the kids are getting an experience in their preferred modality, and then half of them are getting it not in their preferred modality. And then you test later, is there an advantage to either comprehending the story or perhaps remembering the story later if you were in your preferred modality? And this is where we find no evidence at all that there's, there's any support for learning styles. And I mentioned briefly, there's lots of these theories. So there's visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. There's also visual versus verbal. There's sort of sequential versus holistic. There's something like there was a study in Britain, 2004, that they said there were at least at least 30 or 40 of these various styles that have been proposed at various times. And the key prediction never works out. There's no advantage. Now, uh, I want to circle back and talk about this distinction between pedagogy and the scientific, the, the basic science prediction. Go back to our teacher who does the volcano in three different ways. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, if you're separating kids and giving them different experiences in the expectation that there's a scientific reason that this is going to help, it's a little hard to defend, right? The other way this could be taken is, well, I don't really know who's who in terms of what type of learner they are. So everybody's going to get all three. Now, is that a good idea? Well, you could say getting three exposures to any idea is probably a good thing. Not, learning styles doesn't have to be right. It's just three different ways of understanding the same phenomenon. Then you could say, like, seems like a little bit of an opportunity cost, like you spent the whole you know, lesson plan on volcanoes, maybe the kinesthetic would have been enough. That would have been a, a perfect for that lesson. And then you could have moved on to talk a little bit more about like what happens after it erupts and the effect on the soil or something like that, right? Um, so is that, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, and, and let me just clarify. So I think what you're saying is that by by receiving information in three different modalities does not mean that you're going to get the same meaning from. Oh no, yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. So then actually it's probably good to use different modalities because children may, may glean different insights from different modalities. This is an instance where I think the teacher is going to, you know, just sort of evaluate whether or not adding different modalities makes sense. So if you're, you know, the example I give in the book is if you're doing a geography lesson and you're introducing children to the main rivers of Africa, that's very visual. And you're crazy if you try and talk about it, right? Um, you know, what you really, they need to see a map and you may do some talking to support, obviously. But the main thing is you want them to see where the rivers are. So if you're struggling, like, how am I going to make this auditory or something? It could be like, it's just not very auditory. And this is what I said in Why Don't Students Like School. I think the, the, uh, there is something that these theories have to offer teachers, and, but it's not about this is like you need to tune your lesson plans to different kids and different kids should experience it in different ways. But instead, it's a way of thinking about different things that can happen during a lesson. So you've got the serial versus holist. That's a nice dichotomy, both in terms of you know, teacher thinking, would it, would it be better to for them to see the big picture first? Or should we start small and sort of build step by step? Which way do I think is going to make the most sense to most of my kids? 
Or another thing you could think is all of my lesson plans have entailed this serial thing. There's been no big picture, nothing in my classroom for, it feels like three or four days. Like I want to find some way of building that experience in for my kids, right? So it's just a lens through which to, to examine material and just different ways of thinking about things. You, you've said that there isn't really a scientific basis for learning styles applied to education. What about the idea of multiple intelligences? So multiple intelligences is the best known for educators among a large class of theories. And researchers have been trying to understand this since the 1930s, uh, which is sort of the, the structure of mental ability. Does it make sense to think of mental ability as unidimensional? It's sort of like either you, ha- you have a lot, we're not even talking about where it might come from, uh, but you either have a lot or you don't have very much. Smart people are just kind of smart at most things they try. People who are not so smart are sadly just not very smart at most things they try. Or does it make more sense to think of, for example, the very common feeling that, you know, it doesn't make sense to say smart or not smart because some people are really good with numbers, but they're not very good with words. And then other people show the opposite. So how do we think about the nature of mental ability? So multiple intelligences is one theory that's been proposed. Since its inception in the 1980s, the psychologists who do this have not thought it was the best theory out there. When it was first proposed, it was immediately criticized as not accounting for the existing data in the 1980s, as well as other theories did. One of the big concerns was that Gardner talked about all the seven intelligences that he proposed as being really independent, really separate from one another. But it had been known since the 1920s or 30s that mental abilities are correlated. The big puzzle was that some of them correlate much better than others. So, you know, if you just simply put, you take math abilities, all the, you give uh, someone a bunch of different math tests, they would all correlate very highly. If you then gave tests of spatial reasoning, all those would hang together, but they would really correlate with the math tests pretty high. Then if you also give them reading tests, that wouldn't correlate with either one of the two nearly as well as they correlate with one another. But math does correlate with spatial ability and with reasoning. So, you know, is it all one thing or is it all completely independent things? It had been known for a long time the data were not consistent with either one of those stories. And so this is why it had been a big puzzle since the 30s. And then in terms of the specific breakdown of how to think about the different mental abilities, that, of, that of course, had, had also been another uh, source of controversy. But um, the multiple intelligences theory really caught on in education. Uh, and, and Howard Gardner has said this a number of times in, in interviews. It really took off because he didn't call them mental abilities. He called them intelligences. So talking, instead of talking about musical ability or athletic ability, he talked about musical intelligence, athletic intelligence. Uh, And his feeling was that educators, that struck a chord in educators, and they liked that way of talking about it. And it garnered his uh, theory a lot of attention. Can critical thinking be taught? Yes, it very clearly can but it can be taught in a specific domain. So there's, there are lots of examples of people teaching critical thinking methods within a particular domain. So the military is great at this. Uh, for example, you know, if you go to sub-school, you will learn about submarine warfare and you will learn what it means to uh, conduct an attack on, on a surface ship. Uh, via submarine. And that's a that's a critical thinking problem, a very rapidly evolving critical thinking problem. Uh, and there's ample evidence that that can be taught. Um, I think you asked the question because you're wondering whether critical thinking that is taught in one domain then makes you better at critical thinking in other domains. Because we are certainly used to talking about, talking about critical thinking that way in education. When you ask people, 
you know, what, what should children learn in school? Often they will say, well, it's not enough to just learn information. They need to learn how to analyze and how to synthesize and how to critique information. Uh, and all that sounds like critical thinking. And that sounds like a very reasonable goal to teach kids how to analyze, synthesize. And there, the evidence is much worse that, uh, that you can teach skills that are highly transferable. It seems to be much more domain specific. There have been some efforts just in the last couple of years to teach sort of recognition of situations where a particular thinking skill will, would come in handy. And those have been pretty successful, more successful than uh, we've been able to do in the past. So this isn't being good at critical thinking wholesale. It's teaching kids something like, look, correlation is not causation. That's something most kids encounter by the time they get out of high school. I will tell you right now, if you review articles in professional psychology journals for a while, you will see professional psychologists who've been doing research for years confuse correlation and causation. It's very hard to remember and recognize, oh, this is an instance where that, that uh, bit of critical thinking applies. And when I said that uh, there have been some recent efforts to improve on that, that was the kind of thing I'm talking about. Even those psychologists that you said wrote the articles where they confounded causation and correlation, they would probably be the first to tell you that correlation is not causation. So is it that you need to almost be able to, to do this meta thinking, to stand back from yourself and to say, okay, I need to be critical here. And how do I actually critique what I'm hearing in this, in this statement or in this piece of information? The bit that you said at the end there, how do I do it? That's the problem, right? Because when you're talking about critical thinking, you're talking, you're talking about functional relationships among the entities of whatever it is that you're trying to think critically about. So in other words, I give you a problem to solve and you look at it and it's very obvious about that it's about lions and tigers because the word lion and tiger is right there in there now there may be a fallacy in this problem that i hand you but the fallacy is not going to be obvious it might be you know affirming the consequent it might be confusing correlation and causation it might be um, not respecting newton's third law there's no way of knowing, right? And so that's what that's what makes critical thinking so tricky. It's all very well to say, I mean, you're better off saying, I'm going to really think about critically than not, but that, that doesn't provide very much direction about what to do. And so the people who are good at spotting correlation, uh, causation, confusion, are mostly people who have seen many, many instances and sometimes it's about lions and tigers, and sometimes it's about apples and oranges and so on. And seeing it in different, seeing the same underlying structure in different guises seems to be very important because there are a couple of really interesting papers where you have people who have a lot of experience with a particular type of problem, but it's always in the same guise. So the one I'm thinking of was published, I think, just in 2019 or something, where these very clever researchers found a bunch of people who uh, are basketball experts. And one of the things they do, so these are coaches and these are odds makers, gambling odds makers. And so they're very good at one particular type of combination of conditional probability, which is if they say, all right, team A is playing team B. I think team A is roughly, they'll win roughly 60% of the matchups. I, team A is better. Now, take, okay, so 0.6 that they're going to win any one game. Now they're playing a seven-game series. What are the odds that team A will win in four games? So you need to know how to combine 0.6 appropriately, right? Or what are the odds that they'll win in five games and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. These, these folks who have lots and lots of experience in thinking about that, 
they're very good at this. So you ask them and they immediately answer and their answers are consistent with their initial estimate. You then do the traditional probability thing. I've got two urns. One has 60% white marbles and 40% red marbles and they're lost. They can't do it at all, right? So this point of this example is there seems to be, this is just one little bit of data. There's some other, other reasons to think this is right. But one important aspect of critical thinking is recognizing problems you've seen before and know how to deal with effectively. Uh, but you need to recognize this is that type of problem. And one of the things that seems to be crucial about that is seeing that underlying problem structure in many different surface structures. And presumably being immersed in either the discipline or the domain over, over a period of time. I think that being, I think being immersed, there are other reasons that you need to be immersed in the problem. So in other words, I think if you did the basketball thing for several years, even if you didn't know, um, know anything about basketball, and so couldn't really size up the teams, but I just tell you, you know, something about the team, then uh, I think you'd probably still be good at that one thing. There are other moments where uh, you need domain knowledge to apply strategies that you know are a good idea. So metacognition is uh, a good thing. Thinking about thinking, no, having memorized strategies is part of metacognition. But frequently, in order to actually execute the strategy, you need domain knowledge. And my go-to example for this is in science, thinking about the idea of a control condition. And there's a formal definition of what makes a good control condition. It's the control condition should be just the same as the experimental condition, except for the independent variable. Well, that's fine. And, you know, I can write that if you give me a quiz. I, I, uh, but knowing how to actually make that happen really requires a lot of domain knowledge. So I'd be great at coming up with effective control conditions if I'm in a memory experiment or some areas of education. But if you say, Dan, I'm setting up this experiment in conservation biology, Right. There's, I, I, there, I'm lost. I'm not going to know what's going to make an effective control condition there. You're on the editorial board for many journals and you act as a reviewer for many journals as well. How do you evaluate the value or the potential contribution of a research article in education? Reviewers are mostly judging whether the uh, research was done well and whether the conclusions are merited by the data and the experimental design. So, you know, did they impute causality when there was when it was really correlational data? And did they use the proper control group and all that? In terms of the, you know, how interesting is this? How big a contribution is this? You'll chip in, you'll chip in your opinion, but the editor really has more say in that than you do, because the editor is thinking uh, about the other articles that they have at their disposal to either publish or not. And so there, as, as I'm sure you know, there are, uh, you know, hierarchies of journals and journals that only publish things that seem really revolutionary and exciting. And then there are journals that are kind of hungry for papers. And so they don't want to publish trash. Uh, if it's not well done, they won't publish it. That's true of pretty much every peer-reviewed journal I've ever seen. If something gets criticized heavily, it's just not going to get published. But they'll publish things that are fine. It was well done. It's not super interesting, but um, yeah. And, That's funny and you asked that. I've never been asked that before. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm interested because, you know, very often education research is criticized for its quality or its lack of rigor or, you know, that one article contradicts another. So I'm trying to just understand how, how can a teacher evaluate the quality of an article if, if, if there isn't even consensus among the people who are steeped in it, like yourself? Yeah, well, I think it's one article contradicting another that, like, that's 
that's science, baby. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it. That's what happens. You know, this is why I've heard a number of working scientists talk about the, the sort of tragic consequences of what's happened with COVID-19 with that scientific process playing out in the public and people who don't know, yeah, like we get more data and you know what? We change our mind because that's kind of what we're supposed to do. Uh, and when you have something that's brand new in humans, like you kind of expect we're going to go down and make false leads and so forth. So people like me were not, you know, phased at all by the fact that they, you know, the scientists who know about this, virologists who understand this, uh, change their mind. And the same thing is true in education. Um, you expect that articles are, they're going to be contradictory and funny things happen. It takes a long time for things uh, to get sorted out. And this is why in terms of teachers evaluating this literature, I think it's crazy to, for anybody to think that they should do that. You know, that's a, for someone like me, like that's my only job. That takes all my time and I can barely do it. So like the idea that a teacher would do this and be a full-time teacher is a joke. So what, what I've suggested really needs to happen is that professional organizations of teachers ought to take this work on for teachers. And as I've pointed out, this is what happens in most professions. Most physicians don't go home after treating patients all day and then read up on the primary journal articles. Instead, there are periodic summaries, you know, usually annually, that say, okay, here's what's changed in the last year. So that, you know, presumably one hopes you're getting absolutely fantastic uh, education uh, during your training as a teacher. But then, you know, science marches on and some things change. And 10 years out, you think, gosh, some of what I knew might be dated. Uh, and so there should be someone like me whose full-time job it is to be reading all of these articles and sort of trying to adjudicate among them and say, yeah, we don't know, you know, what you've been doing regarding, you know, the, the sequence in which you're teaching kids letter sound correspondences seems fine. A bunch of people have been trying that. It may or may not make a difference. We don't really know. The data are unclear yet. Or, okay, now we know enough. This seems like you ought to think about changing this in your practice. That's what I feel like in this country, teachers unions ought to be doing. And, and education has the other disadvantage, unlike medicine, that, that control groups don't really work or are in many cases are not ethically possible or not empirically possible. Because once you learn something one way, you can't go back to where you were at the start and then learn it a different way. It's, it's more complicated, certainly. You have, you know, you don't have animal models for one thing, and you you don't have clinical trials. You have something like clinical trials, but you're right, there are complications. I think you can make headway, but I think progress is slower. Professor Willingham, we're coming to the end of the interview, and I have a few general questions that I put to every guest, not necessarily related to your own research, but I'd be interested in getting your, your views on them. And my first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I think, I think schools are, I think, I, I'm a strong believer in the idea that local people living in a locality should have some say in what school is for. So if, if a bunch of people in a community think that school is all about helping kids get a job when they finish, then maybe that's what should happen in that community. If on the other hand, they think that school is about self-actualization and the goal of schooling is to help kids understand who they are and what they enjoy, then maybe that's what school should, school should do. Um, but it's outside the bounds of science, right? This is not anything that science can tell us. Uh, and so I immediately figure, well, I don't know what the hell's going on. And I say silly stuff as I just did. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Oh, yeah. Many, many of my teachers uh, did. I would say most of them did. I mean, I remember all of my teachers very, very well. And got along pretty well with almost all of them. And, you know, maybe one exception I can think of. 
so it would be it would be hard for me to to you know select one as being as you know profoundly important what is your vision of an educated person i have a i have a lot of expertise gained in different ways and so when you say educated i'm a little unclear on what that means but i'm i'm thinking of it more broadly as expertise and i'm met a lot of people who are just really good at things that are not taught in schools and are not taught formally. I'm thinking about people who are extraordinarily sensitive in making human connections and can handle very difficult interpersonal situations with grace that's that's really uncommon. And so I I think I I just enjoy and appreciate expertise in lots of different forms and um, that are that are acquired in lots of different ways. So I'm not sure if that's what you meant by educated, but that's that's the way I think about it. That's great. And the last one is, have you a favorite writer, book or blog about education? You know, I get asked that all the time and I really don't because um, I'm a big believer that um, it's, it's wonderful to get access to lots of different perspectives. So I follow lots of different people on Twitter, and including a lot of people who I, I mostly disagree with. But the common thread is there are people who for if you want to know what someone with that point of view thinks, this is a really good thinker who holds the beliefs that sort of go with that. And I think the same is same is true in terms of what I read. And therefore, I mean, I don't know if it's a good idea if other people read this way, but this is the way I read. I, I try to, to read really, really broadly. And a lot of times what I read in education, you know, most of it, I think this is stupid. But then like, you know, in that book that I think, I don't know why I'm even reading this. You know, you'll you'll find that nugget. You'll find that idea that um, you hadn't thought of before. Someone puts things together in a way that you hadn't considered, um, and the whole the whole thing seems worth it. Uh, and that's why I don't I don't uh, and I'm not very systematic. I guess if I were starting out, I would be more systematic, but I'm not at this point very systematic. I sort of carom from one thing to another as by by happenstance. We, we, I, I tried to set up this interview with you over a year ago, and uh, and at the time you were very busy on writing writing some books, and you had, you had various journal articles. So, for somebody who wants to find out more about your books or about your work more generally, how how can they how how can they find you on social media? And you know what what would you like them to what would you direct them to first in terms of your own work? Well, uh, DanielWillingham.com is a sort of uh, 2002 style website that you can you can go to. It's very primitive. And a, a friends of mine keep telling me, you really need to update that. You need to make it look professional. And I, I what my story is that the lack of professionalism is that's my brand is, uh, you know, this is, he's an academic. He doesn't, he doesn't have a, a fancy publicity machine, which is all too true. Um, but in any event, this is mostly shamefacedly uh, apologizing for the, what the website looks like because it just looks terrible. Uh, but anyway, there, the good thing about the website is it does have most anything that I've written where I can just link to it or you can download, it's there. And so there's a lot of stuff that if you're interested in reading things that I've written, they're available there. And then I'm on uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, at DT Willingham. Um, on, on both platforms. So, and that books that those books that I begged off. So one of them was the second edition of Why Don't Students Like School? That was out earlier this year. And the other is a book called um, Outsmart Your Brain, which is uh, coming out in August of 20. It's done now. I'm doing the copy editing, uh, but it's, it's not going to be published until next summer. And that one's about self-regulation of learning. It's about how students can learn how to learn on their own. And no doubt that book will be worth looking out for when it's released next summer. My guest on this podcast was cognitive scientist Professor Daniel T. Willingham from the University of Virginia.
You can listen back to this episode or to over 420 previous episodes by going to my website seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. Please email me with suggestions or feedback to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. My book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is available from all good libraries. The audio version read by me is available from Audible and other audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you.